Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to The Ancient World. Episode 12, Legacies of East and West. The period from 1000 to 500 BC, which we've entered these past few episodes, is the last that can really be termed ancient history. Toward the end of this period, we'll be touching on the classical civilizations, particularly Greece and Rome, which represent the fairly direct predecessors to many of our modern institutions, political philosophies, and ideals. At the dawn of the Classical Age, these European cultures will square off against a Near East that has progressed through a succession of increasingly larger and more powerful empires, the first of which, Neo-Assyria, is just now taking the stage, before finally perfecting the form under the Achaemenid Persians. With the rise of Persia, the storylines of the Near East, North Africa, Europe, and beyond converge into the story of a single mighty empire, holding sway from India in the east to Ionian Greece in the west. And it is in defending its land and ideals against this seemingly unstoppable enemy that Greek culture will find its ultimate expression. Since so many threads of history converge in the successive Persian conquests of Cyrus, Cambyses, and Darius, I wanted to take some time this episode to discuss the few ancient civilizations that would remain untouched by these coming events, notably those of the Far East and the Americas. Let's start by looking in on the ancient Americas. The first American civilization, the Norte Chico of Peru, fell into decline around 1800 B.C., For nearly the next thousand years, no regional successor rose to match or build on its accomplishments. The first glimmer of something different and new finally came around 900 BC, when people in the Peruvian highlands, north of modern-day Lima, began building a ceremonial complex at the site of Chavin de Huantar. The cult center bestowed its name upon the people who built it, who later became known as the Chavin. The temple at Chavin de Huantar incorporated a complex drainage system to mitigate the effects of frequent seasonal flooding and was acoustically designed so that rainwater rushing through underground canals simulated the roar of a jaguar, an animal sacred to Chavin culture. The temple was built of white granite and black limestone, neither of which is found locally, implying that Chavin leaders organized workers to bring the materials across great distances. 
In addition to their architectural achievements, the Chavin also demonstrated advanced knowledge of metallurgy, as demonstrated in refined goldwork from the period. While apparently having no written language, making things somewhat difficult for someone with a podcast to produce, the Chavin culture was responsible for the creation of the first widespread, recognizable artistic style in the Andes. Chavin art featured a nature-based iconography of anthropomorphic figures, and took the form of carvings, sculptures, pottery, metalwork, and textiles. The feline figure is dominant in Chavin art, and appeared to have a religious significance. Tainan heads, stone carvings of massive fanged jaguar heads, are among the most well-known images associated with Chavin de Huantar. Possibly the most impressive artifact from the site is the Lanzon, a 4.5-meter-long carved granite shaft on display in the temple. The shaft extends through both the floor and ceiling of the structure, and is decorated with a carving of the Staff God, a fanged deity who was the chief cult image of the Chavin people. The anthropomorphic imagery found at Chavin de Huantar, including numerous sculptures and carvings showing the transformation from human to jaguar, implies that Chavin religion centered around shape-shifting. Religious ceremonies likely involved the use of hallucinogenic drugs, including those made from native San Pedro cacti. Small mortars, possibly used to grind vilca, a hallucinogenic snuff, had been recovered from Chavin sites, alongside bone tubes and spoons decorated with images of wild animals. Artwork at Chavin de Huantar shows figures holding what appears to be San Pedro cacti in their hands and with mucus streaming from their nostrils, a common side effect of vilca use. Along with psychotropic drugs, Chavin religious ceremonies also involved elaborate costumes and music. Several carvings at Chavin de Huantar show priestly figures wearing elaborate headdresses and blowing trumpet-like shell instruments. Several temple rooms have small fire pits with the remains of food, animals, and pottery, suggesting that Chavin rituals involve burnt sacrificial offerings. At Chavin de Huantar, and haven't we heard this before, priests derive power from the popular belief that they had a special connection to the supernatural, and use this power to establish themselves as a ruling elite. Priests may also have used their knowledge of and control over rituals involving psychotropic drugs in order to enhance the popular perception of their special status and magical powers, particularly those involving shamanistic transformation. Priestly influence was most visibly manifested through acts of monumental construction, such as the Chavan de Huantar complex which necessarily involved directing the population to obtain materials, build the temple, and decorate it with the proper religious iconography. Chavin culture apparently had a strong influence on neighboring civilizations up and down the Peruvian coast. Pacopampa, a site far to the north, has a temple with features similar to Chavin designs. Garagay, a site near modern Lima, features Chavin-like imagery including a carving of a head with mucus streaming from the nostrils. At Cerro Blanco, a site in Peru's Napeña Valley, excavations under ceramics that were clearly Chavin in style. Chavin influence was apparently purely cultural, and there is no evidence of warfare or military domination in the region during this period. Chavin cultural development proceeded in three phases. 
From roughly 900 to 500 BC, the population consisted of a few hundred people living in two small residential areas near the Chavin de Huantar ceremonial center. The Chavin of this era domesticated llamas for use as pack animals, fiber, and meat, including llama jerky. They also began to cultivate several crops, including potatoes, quinoa, and maize, and developed an irrigation system to assist in agricultural production. During the second phase, between 500 and 400 BC, the population began to grow and became directly centered around the Chavin complex. This period saw both increased llama domestication and increased contact and exchanges with other nearby regional cultures. At its peak during the third phase, around 400 BC, Chavin de Huantar held a population of around 3,000, consisting of a central population cluster in the lowland valleys and smaller satellite communities at the surrounding higher altitudes. There is also some evidence of increases in both specialization and social differentiation during this latter period. In the period after 400 BC, and outside the official scope of this podcast series, the Chavin, along with other nearby Peruvian coastal cultures, fell into decline, possibly as a result of recurring El Nino floods and droughts affecting the area. Over the centuries that followed, the Huari and Tiwanaku cultures became dominant, introducing both terraced field farming and road building to the region. They, in turn, were succeeded by powerful city-states such as Tonkei, Sipan, and Cajamarca, and two empires, the Chimor and Chachapoyas. These cultures developed relatively advanced techniques of cultivation, pottery, metalwork, and textiles, and their systems of social organization were precursors to those of the later Inca Empire, the Peruvian culture that would eventually be encountered and conquered by the Spanish. Now let's turn our attention to Mesoamerica, the cultural zone extending from central Mexico to just above the Isthmus of Panama. Early Mesoamerican cultures shared many beliefs and customs, and central to these was the cultivation of maize, or corn, which began in the region around 2700 BC. The growing of corn, along with other vegetables such as beans and squash, enabled Mesoamericans to settle into permanent agricultural communities. Around 1500 BC, villages located along the fertile banks of rivers flowing into the Gulf of Mexico, near modern-day Veracruz, coalesced into a complex society called the Olmec, or Dwellers in the Land of Rubber, for the rubber trees that flourished in the area. The term Olmec was used by the 15th century AD Aztec to describe the contemporary inhabitants of the region. The Olmec may have been known in their own time as Teneselome, meaning mouth of the jaguar. The rise of civilization along the riverbanks was assisted by the fertility of the well-watered alluvial soil, as well as the transportation network provided by the Quetzalcoatlcos River Basin. With year-round warmth and rainfall, the Olmec were able to grow four crops of maize per year, producing the food surpluses needed to support a complex hierarchical society. This highly productive environment encouraged a densely concentrated population, which in turn triggered the rise of an elite class, which in turn created the demand for the sophisticated luxury items that came to define the Olmec culture. Luxury items were made from materials such as jade, obsidian, and magnetite, all of which came from distant locations and suggest that Olmec elites had access to an extensive trading network throughout Mesoamerica. 
Jade, for example, is found in the Matagua River Valley in eastern Guatemala, and obsidian has been traced to sources in the Guatemalan highlands and in Puebla, distances ranging from 120 to 250 miles away. Hematite for polished mirrors came from Oaxaca, while basalt for monumental sculpture and grindstones was brought from the Tuxtla Mountains, roughly 50 miles to the north of the Olmec site of San Lorenzo. In return for these goods, the Olmec traded jungle products, such as jaguar pelts and feathers, which were used as status symbols by other native peoples in the region. While the Olmec were not necessarily the first Mesoamerican civilization to establish long-distance trade networks, the Olmec period saw a vast increase in their range, the diversity of the sources of base materials, and the variety of items exchanged. In addition to obtaining luxury goods for Olmec elites, these long-distance trade networks served to disseminate Olmec culture widely throughout Mesoamerica. In addition to ample harvests of corn, the Olmec diet was supplemented with fish, turtle, and snake from the nearby rivers, and crabs and shellfish from the coastal areas. Birds were available as food sources, as were plentiful game, including rabbit and deer. Despite the wide range of hunting and fishing available, investigations at the Olmec site of San Lorenzo have found that the domesticated dog was the single most plentiful source of animal protein in the Olmec diet. When not working in the fields, peasants labored on monuments and public works projects. While most Olmec dressed simply, rulers impressed their subjects by donning elaborate headdresses and mirrors of polished metal around their necks. Planting and other seasonal activities were governed by a calendar based on lunar months, and Olmec scribes kept track of events using pictographs called glyphs, which have not yet been deciphered, but may represent the first written language of Mesoamerica. The Olmec are also credited with inventing the 260-day sacred year and 52-year long-count calendars, both of which were adopted by subsequent Mesoamerican civilizations. Incorporated into the long-count calendar was also one of the earliest uses of the concept of the number zero in recorded history. The centers of Olmec civilization were not cities per se, but ceremonial complexes, with monumental architecture including earthen pyramids, walled plazas, stone temples, and ball courts, all of which were also widely adopted by later Mesoamerican cultures. Rulers and the retainers lived in these ceremonial complexes, while most of the population resided in surrounding villages. The first great Olmec ceremonial complex was San Lorenzo, inland from the Gulf of Mexico, which grew from a large agricultural settlement into a major cultural center by around 1200 BC. The center itself had housing for roughly 5,000 people, while the surrounding hinterland may have supported an additional 8,000. Built on high ground between then-active tributaries, the core of San Lorenzo was extensively modified through filling and leveling, a process involving some half a million to two million cubic meters of earthen fill, all of which had to be moved in baskets. San Lorenzo also boasted an elaborate drainage system, which used buried, covered, and channeled stones as a sort of piping. After 300 years of habitation, the San Lorenzo site was virtually abandoned by 900 BC, most likely due to environmental changes and shifting river courses. At around this same time, an even larger Olmec ceremonial complex arose at La Venta, located on an island in a coastal swamp overlooking the then-active Rio Palma volcano.
Unlike later Maya and Aztec cities, Laventa was built from earth and clay. There was little stone available locally for its construction. However, large basalt stones were brought in from the Tuxtla Mountains for use in monuments, including the colossal Olmec stone heads, which have become almost synonymous with their culture, as well as for thrones, sometimes mistaken for altars, and various stelae. Buried deep beneath La Venta, and uncovered by 20th century excavations, lay a cache of opulent, labor-intensive offerings, including a thousand tons of smooth serpentine rocks, large mosaic pavements, and at least 48 separate deposits of polished jade items, pottery, figures, and hematite mirrors. The Great Pyramid at La Venta was the largest Mesoamerican structure of its time. Even today, after 2,500 years of erosion, it rises 112 feet above the naturally flat landscape. A nearby sacred area, probably a mortuary complex dedicated to the spirits of deceased rulers, contains the earliest known relief sculpture of a feathered serpent found in Mesoamerica. To the south of these structures is a large public plaza, surrounded by platforms, which were possibly used as stages upon which to enact ritual dramas. Evidence found at Olmec sites, including stingray spikes and magway thorns, suggests the practice of ritual bloodletting. However, actual evidence for Olmec human or infant sacrifice is less conclusive. La Venta was the most prominent Olmec center from around 900 BC until its abandonment around 400 BC, and served to sustain Olmec cultural traditions while also displaying the civilization's immense power and wealth. It's been estimated that the population of Laventa may have been as high as 18,000 during its main period of occupation. While some degree of social stratification likely existed, between rulers, merchants, artisans, and agricultural workers and laborers, there's no evidence that the Olmec had a standing army, a priestly caste, or other common institutions of later Mesoamerican civilization. Also, while San Lorenzo and La Venta were significant cultural sites, there is no evidence that they dominated the entire Olmec heartland. The massive stone heads found at several Olmec ceremonial sites, including both San Lorenzo and La Venta, are thought to represent Olmec rulers. Shaped from basalt, quarried near volcanic mountains many miles away, and transported by raft, the heads were inscribed with glyphs, possibly the rulers' names, and sculpted with stern features. It's been estimated that moving a colossal head required the efforts of 1,500 people for three to four months, implying a high degree of organization and control. Along with the stone heads, Olmec artists sculpted jade figurines and clay models representing were-jaguars, creatures revered for their strength and cunning. Olmec rulers may have served as shamans of a jaguar cult and claimed kinship with the animal. Similar to the Chavin of Peru, the Olmec and later Mesoamerican cultures believed that shamans could enter the spirit world and change shape, becoming jaguars or other were-creatures. Which brings up the interesting question, was there any interaction between the early cultures of Mesoamerica and South America during the first millennium BC? Despite several similarities, the current consensus appears to be no. The main reason for this, as persuasively argued in Jared Diamond's excellent book Guns, Germs, and Steel, 
is that the nearly impassable geographic barriers presented by mountains and the narrow isthmus of land interposed between the cultures of Mesoamerica and the Andes effectively blocked the free flow of people, goods, and ideas between the two developing regions. In fact, there is still no land route effectively connecting the two regions. Even the Pan-American Highway remains unfinished in the region near the Panama-Colombian border. This situation stands in stark contrast to that experienced by the ancient civilizations of the Near East, North Africa, and Europe, which lacked such impassable geographic barriers, and therefore saw more rapid development in many areas of human culture and technology. The reasons for the fall of Laventa around 400 BC and the concurrent end of Olmec civilization are not well understood. As with San Lorenzo, a changing environment is the likely culprit, in particular the silting up of rivers due to Olmec agricultural practices. After their downfall, and the scope of this podcast series, the region remained mostly uninhabited for centuries, as volcanic, tectonic, and other environmental impacts rendered it less and less desirable. However, within a few hundred years of the abandonment of the last Olmec sites, successor cultures had already become firmly established in the surrounding areas, including the Zapotec of Monte Alban in Oaxaca and Teotihuacan in the fertile valley of Mexico. But it was upon the Maya of the nearby Yucatan Peninsula that the Olmec had perhaps the strongest influence. As early as 600 BC, the Maya were building ceremonial centers much like those fashioned by the Olmec, with temple pyramids, plazas, ball courts, and residences for the ruling elite. Over time, the Maya would develop into one of the most influential and longest-lasting civilizations of the Americas, and would still be around to encounter the first European sailing ships to reach the New World, nearly 2,000 years later. Leaving the early Americas and turning our gaze westward across the Pacific, let's look in on developments in the Far East. As discussed previously, around 1100 BC, forces from a province in western China led a rebellion against the last Shang dynasty ruler, a notoriously corrupt despot named Di Xin. The usurpers, who had previously been appointed protectors of the west under the Shang, emerged victorious from the conflict at the Battle of Muye. In victory, they founded the Zhou dynasty under King Wu, claiming that they had a mandate from heaven to govern China, as long as they did so with wisdom and justice. For more than two centuries after their victory, during what is called the Western Zhou period, the dynasty seemed to enjoy heaven's blessing. Chinese culture, literature, and philosophy flourished, and the art of ironworking was first introduced to China, though the period also produced some of the finest Chinese bronzeware. It was also under the Zhou dynasty, albeit during the later Eastern Zhou period, that the written Chinese script evolved into its modern form. The Zhou also maintained cultural continuity with their predecessors. Under Western Zhou rule, Shang-style tripod ritual vessels continued to be used for sacrifices, and oracle bones continued to be used for divination. King Wu died a few years after founding the dynasty. Because his son, King Cheng of Zhou, was young, and any sign of weakness might tempt the Shang to counter-rebellion, Wu's brother, the unnamed Duke of Zhou, took power as regent. Unfortunately, his ascension did not produce the desired stabilizing effect. 
Wu's other three brothers, concerned about the duke's growing power, formed an alliance with other regional rulers, including Shang remnants, to foment a rebellion. The Duke of Zhou managed to both stamp out the rebellion and expand Western Zhou holdings in the process. Under the Duke and his successors, the Western Zhou Kingdom expanded to cover a vast area, from well north of the Yellow River to south of the Yangtze. Under the feudal system that the Zhou inherited from the Shang, powerful provincial rulers, typically royal relatives or military generals, still held sway over their own fiefdoms. These fiefdoms were commonly granted in the eastern Zhou lands, including Luyang, Jin, Ying, Qi, and Yen. Under the feudal system, similar to that of medieval Europe, fiefs were given to the king's supporters to administer in his name in return for military service or tax revenue. While technically revocable, such fiefdoms tended to become hereditary in practice and often passed out of the ruler's control. In fact, many provincial rulers actually came to possess more land than the Zhou king, who only exercised direct control over a small district surrounding his capital. This inherent instability boded poorly for the future prospect of western Zhou rule, and many vassal territories would become independent states when the dynasty eventually weakened. After the Duke of Zhou stepped down as regent, both the remainder of King Cheng's reign and that of his son, Kong, appeared to have been peaceful and prosperous. The fourth western Zhou king, Zhao, took power in 996 BC. By this time, the Zhou held dominion over the central plains of China, and Zhao began turning his attention to the south. In 977 BC, King Zhao met his end, alongside the six armies of the west, a substantial portion of total Zhou forces, in an attack against the southern state of Chu. In the aftermath of the battle, the Han River became the effective southern boundary of western Zhou rule. The fifth king, Mu, enjoyed a long reign of 55 years, supposedly living to the age of 105. An inveterate traveler and ambitious reformer, King Mu transformed the western Zhou government from a hereditary system to one based on knowledge and merit. During King Mu's reign, the power and prestige of the Zhou dynasty was at its peak, and Mu led military efforts to both quell western invasions and expand Zhou influence eastward. The result of Mu's campaigns were mixed, and resentment sparked by his often heavy-handed militarism would come back to haunt later Zhou rulers. Toward the end of King Mu's long reign, the power of the centralized state had weakened, as the family relationships that bound the king to his vassals had become increasingly attenuated. At the same time, the increasing power and prestige of local rulers had grown to rival that of the Zhou royal family, never a promising sign. The reigns of the next four western Zhou kings, Gong, Yi, Xiao, and Yi, again, are poorly documented. The second king, Yi, is said to have boiled the Duke of Qi in a cauldron, hinting that the vassal states may have been getting a bit rambunctious under his rule. The tenth western Zhou king, Li, took power in 877 BC. Notoriously corrupt and decadent, King Li raised taxes, instituted the death penalty for anyone who spoke out against him, and generally led the dynasty down the merry path toward revolt, which eventually happened in 842 BC. 
In what may be the first instance of a peasant rebellion in recorded Chinese history, agrarian workers and soldiers, incensed by Li's draconian rule, captured and exiled him to a place called Ji near the city of Linfen. Zhou dynasty officials elected He, the Count of Gong, to act as regent during his exile, a period that lasted for the next 14 years. When Li finally died in 828 BC, his son Xuan was proclaimed king. King Xuan worked to restore royal authority and prestige following the period of exile and regency. He fought against Zhou enemies in both the west and southeast, and also intervened militarily in succession struggles in the states of Lu, Wei, and Qi. Despite his best efforts, regional lords became increasingly disobedient over the course of his reign, eventually acting in open defiance of royal commands. King Xuan may not have been having orgies while floating in a lake of wine, but he could probably still see the writing on the wall. The twelfth and final king of the Western Zhu period was Yu, who took power in 781 BC. When Yu replaced his wife with a concubine, the former queen's powerful father, the Marquess of Shen, joined forces with Quanrong barbarians to sack the western capital of Haojing and kill King Yu in 771 BC. Most Zhou nobles withdrew from the Wei River Valley at this time, and the Zhou capital was reestablished downriver at the old eastern capital of Chengzhou, near modern-day Luyang. The move to Luyang in 770 BC is considered the start of the Eastern Zhu period. Abandoning their traditional heartland was devastating to the prestige and authority of the ruling Zhou dynasty, and further attenuated their already marginal control over the provinces. The eventual result was the fragmentation of the Zhou kingdom into rival states, some only as large as a village with a fort each with its own government, laws, and hierarchy of ranks and classes. Local strongmen held most of the political power, and continued their subservience to the eastern Zhou kings in name only. As conflict and strife increased, many longed for the return of strong rulers who would govern China wisely with a mandate from heaven. The period from 722 BC to 481 BC is known as the Spring and Autumn Period, after a famous historical chronicle of the time. The later period, between 403 and 221 BC, is known as the Warring States Period, after another famous chronicle. Perhaps due to the devolution of central authority and many conflicts of the time, the Eastern Zhou Period also became the period of the Hundred Schools of Thought a golden age of influential cultural and intellectual expansion, facilitated by relative freedom of expression. Although there were a host of schools, four of them came to influence Chinese government and culture in meaningful ways. Confucianism, Mohism, Taoism, and Legalism. These schools were often training grounds for the lowest ranks of the Zhou ruling class, where scholarship was a prerequisite for finding employment as a government official. Some officials became experts who would travel from state to state, peddling schemes of administrative or military reform. Those who could not find such employment would often end up teaching other young men who aspired to official status. The most famous of these wandering scholars was Confucius, who was born around 550 B.C., Confucius taught a system of ethics that fostered respect for legitimate authority 
and a mutual sense of duty between superiors and inferiors. The legalists, in contrast, had no time for civic virtue and propagated their belief that humans were inherently evil and only a system of strict laws and harsh punishments could keep them in line. The wars of the Warring States period were finally ended by the most legalist state of all, the Qin, who took power in 221 BC and moved quickly to replace the hereditary feudal system with a strong centralized government and a professional non-hereditary bureaucracy. The Qin King Cheng, who was also called Shi Huangdi, first emperor, imposed an enormous tax burden on the peasantry, which he used to build up frontier defenses against the steppe nomads, as well as extend his rule over non-Chinese peoples, thereby creating the first Chinese empire. Cheng is best known today for his tomb, where he was buried alongside an army of 7,000 terracotta warriors, tasked with protecting him in the afterlife. A pity that he didn't have them around sooner, as his despotic rule led rebels to massacre the entire royal family in 206 BC. Another of Cheng's important legacies was connecting the walls built around several warring states to form a continuous defensive barrier along China's northern border, the nucleus of what would later become the Great Wall. The succeeding Han Dynasty adopted Confucian principles, relaxed the Qin Savage Penal Code, and reduced taxes. However, they did not significantly change the pattern of centralized totalitarian government that the Qin had created, which in many ways echoes down to China in the present day. Despite their limited practical authority during much of the latter period, particularly after moving their capital to the east, the Zhou dynasty continued to rule ancient China down through the Warring States period until roughly 256 BC, making their 800-year dynasty the longest in Chinese history to date. During this entire period, Chinese culture and society continued to develop in relative isolation, with the noted exception of innovations transmitted via the nomads of the western steppes. It would not be until the Han Dynasty, which ruled between 202 BC and 220 AD, that the Chinese would develop trade relations and diplomatic ties with other major powers via the Silk Road and Chinese voyages to the Indian Ocean, and finally come to interact on a large scale with the other great civilizations of the ancient world. So, there you have it. The Far East and the Americas in the first millennium BC, and even a bit beyond for good measure. Next episode, it's back to the Near East. In the aftermath of the Battle of Karkar, Shalmaneser III will regain his sure footing and resume the string of Neo-Assyrian victories over the decades to follow. In his final years, aged and weak, he will be forced to watch as civil war between his two sons threatens to destroy everything he has built. Next time on The Ancient World. 